One of my old bosses said to me, there's three things. There's your health, there's your relationship, and there's your family, Claire. And you'll never have all three in balance. <laughs> I was like, what? You'll never be able to balance all those three things. You'll always have two that are perfect, and then one yeah. will go out of sync. But I think that has run true with me. That you, you know, to get this balance, you tend to go through periods where it's okay, and then something skews it. So welcome to the Brave, Bold, Brilliant podcast. I'm Jeanette, your host, and I am here today with Claire Preston Beer, who is the Managing Director of Green King's Pubs. Welcome, Claire. Nice to see you. Thank you, Jeanette. Pleasure to be here. <laughs> I honestly, well, apart from the technical challenges I had actually getting onto Zoom, which we won't talk about, <laughs> we actually managed to make it. So I'm really delighted we got this in the diary. So um, thank you for making the time. I know you're a very busy lady. So um, no it's good to have you here. Brilliant. So Claire, we're going to have a chat about, you know, all things career, business, you know, mindset, how you've got from where you are, anything in between, really. And of course, quite fascinated by, you know, I suppose the pub game as well at the moment with all of its kind of trials, tribulations, challenges, opportunities. Um, I think being a, you know, a woman in the role you're in is is, is really fascinating for us to talk about because we're all about diversity and inclusion as well. Uh, so we're going to have a nice, interesting conversation. But Claire, do you want to kick us off just giving us a, a plotted canter through your background and how you've ended up as MD? of Green King's pubs. This is amazing. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. So um, so I am a northerner, Jeanette. You probably can tell a little bit with my uh, accent. So um, I uh, grew up in the north. I come from Yorkshire. Um, so I, I'm a bit of a northern lass. Um, and I um, had a very happy upbringing um, in the north. Ended up um, going uh, to... Moved around quite a bit because my dad's job, actually. Um, he was in retail. That's kind of important because one of the reasons I ended up doing what I, I do now is because I saw firsthand uh, my dad working in the retail space and I thought it was a really interesting space because he seemed to go to work and have quite a bit of fun. He wasn't always sat in an office. All he did, he came home and talked to me lots about the people he saw every day. So, um, so that's quite important in my story that my dad was in retail um, I, uh, I'm a state educated, um, girl. So, um, uh, had a happy time at school, enjoyed myself a lot. And I ended up, um, <clears throat> getting a place at Oxford university, which was never part of the master plan, if I'm honest, Jeanette. Um, but it ended up being a really interesting experience and it's something that, um, did teach me quite a lot of life skills. So, um, quite a lot around, um, resilience, quite a lot around how to organize myself, but also quite a lot around um, getting the right balance because Oxford can be quite an intense environment and I think it's not for everybody. And so for me, it was about getting the most out of that experience myself, uh, both academically, but also the actual experience and making some great friends and and, and everything like that. So, um, so that was how I um, sort of navigated my way to then, what was I gonna do in life? So having seen my dad uh, working in retail, I thought, oh, I think I could be quite good at that because I really enjoy being with people. I didn't want to be in an office 24 seven, I really didn't. So while I was at uni, I uh, did a graduate placement with Boots, the chemist over one of the summers, which was basically a really good eight week program that let you go and experience what it was like to go and work in that sector. Um, really enjoyed it. And I was offered a place on Boots' graduate training program. 
Um, so I joined the graduate scheme and I did, I worked for Boots for five years, about five years, uh, had a brilliant time, learned all the nuts and bolts that you need to, uh, about stock management, leading teams, all that great stuff. So I felt I had a really good start in the retail space um, with my time with Boots. But um, I was ambitious um, and I was just not moving fast enough. So I was like, no, no, I need, I need to keep, I want to, I want to lead bigger teams. Um, and so I was looking for a business that was growing and that would give me a bigger um, area of um, store managers to look after. And I stumbled across a business called Costa Coffee. And at the time, Costa Coffee was owned by Whitbread. It had 300 stores uh, in the UK, a handful around the globe. And um, and I remember talking about it with my parents. My mum went, yeah, Costa, Costa Coffee. And it, it wasn't very, it wasn't in the north at that time. So she was like, you're going to leave Boots to go and work for who? <laughs> and the only <laughs> thing that gave her some comfort was the fact that it was owned by Whitbread, who my mum had heard of. <laughs> So um, I obviously joined Costa in 2003, which was right at the start of this big, big growth journey that the brand then went on. So I spent 15, 16 really happy years with Costa and I had an absolute ball doing loads of different roles. So I worked my way through the operational side of the business. I learned a lot about franchising because Costa obviously now franchises mm-hmm. brand a lot, both in the UK and globally. Um, and my last job with, with Costa, I ended up um, as managing director for one of the international businesses so the Middle East and Asia business so when I look back at my cost of business I genuinely just had the opportunity to do lots of sideways moves gathering loads of different skills um, and also just just lots of different experiences of actually running a global business so um, yeah I had a really happy time with Costa uh, Coca-Cola obviously acquired Costa at the start of 2019 and that sort of marked a real change for the brand and where the brand was going to go and I decided the time had come I needed to go do something different and uh, I wanted to go and find a business where people were at the heart of um, the customer experience and what the brands delivered. So I was looking um, for something and I started to look and consider the pub space. And the pub space really appealed to me, Jeanette, because I think it's one of the last places actually in the digital world that we've got where people come together, people connect. Um, it's it's a really important space, I think, for, for customers and people to come together and be together. So I love that. And secondly, um, it, we've got work to do from a making pubs accessible, welcoming places for all. And... Um, it was important to me, actually, that we want to change um, how many women we've got working in the pub space, how many women get through into senior positions. So that's something I'm very passionate about. So actually, when I start to think about roles, pubs seem to be a good space for me to um, come and work in. So that was in 2020. I joined Green King. I was very excited about uh, Green King's plans around transforming culture and about becoming um, leaders in diversity across the sector. So I joined then um, and I've had a great time for uh, two and a half years. And um, I've just taken on a slightly larger role in the business looking after Green King Pubs, which is a a bigger portfolio of the business now. Wow, what a story, my (laughs) And you know what, as you were talking, I was giggling to myself because it was quite a lot of parallels with my own kind of career, you know, Northern. (laughs) 
well, I was the only one to go to uni, you know, just kind of that transition into, into that sort of world of work, if you like, but with those very grounded sort of values, if you like, which is sort of really coming through to me, uh, Claire. But can I just take you back a little bit? Because we're going to talk a lot about the different different sort of stages of your career in business and, and kind of what you've learned along the way. But when you went back, to, if you go back to sort of the uni days and when you were when you went to Oxford, um, well, I know you said that wasn't necessarily what you what you planned to do, but obviously Oxford, Cambridge has a certain um, perception, shall we say, around what it's like to be yeah. at uni there compared to maybe some of the other universities. Um, and, and I was just interested to see around sort of how you navigated through that, you know, fit, being a northerner, you know, did you did you naturally just kind of throw yourself in and you were accepted and you kind of loved it? Or was it that you you sort of had a few, oh, I'm a northerner and I'm at Oxford, oh my God, do I fit in here? You know, just interested to hear that kind of side of things in terms of your early, early formative years education-wise, really. Do you know, um, the key thing, I learned a lot, obviously, about Oxford while I was there, but also in the in the application process, Jeanette. And actually, the key thing for me was finding the right college that you could thrive in. So I deliberately only selected colleges that were 50-50 state private. I only selected colleges at the time that were 50-50 male, female. And actually, at the time, that was actually quite hard to find. I know that sounds... It, Oxford's transformed quite a lot today, but... Um, so I ended up in um, Lady Margaret Hall, which was this, it's 50-50 of all those, of both of the categories I just talked about. And I think that was the thing that was the, which meant I was comfortable, I was happy because there were, if I think about all my friends from Oxford, I've got a high proportion that from all over the country, um, I've got a high proportion that are state, private mix. So the key for me was actually finding the right college and then I actually think I probably wore my northern state educated um, background as a bit of a, a badge with pride. Yeah. Um, and I felt that it was, um, it actually felt at the time that it was probably made me a little bit different, actually, from perhaps the norm, um, which was probably a good thing. It, it, it's probably different today because that's moved on a lot, but... But then, no, it was actually probably a positive badge of, right, I'm here and um, I'm here representing something different and, um, yeah, this is me kind of thing. I, I do think the one thing I would say was I think that I've always been someone who's, I'll always have a go at something, you know, and I'm quite confident in myself. And I think you need quite a lot of confidence to go into an environment, though, where you're not the norm and you might be something a bit different. So I think... That's definitely something I um, yeah carried on learning while I was there. Yeah, fantastic. No, it's interesting because there's a few things around this, isn't it? About you know fit and whether it's a university, whether it's a, a, a business environment, or you know a, a kind of a social group, whatever it is, it's, it's find your tribe, really, isn't it? And, yeah, and being definitely. quite conscious with that. Yeah. Um, and, and obviously you were, and, and actually to, to, to be quite intentional like you were at that age, you know, of course at 18, you think you bloody know it all, don't you? Or 17, <laughs> when you, you know, when you're applying for uni and stuff like that. And actually you realise later you actually know nothing, you're just thinking no. it well. <laughs> but, but that was quite a, a mature approach, wasn't it, for you back then to be thinking, okay, I'm consciously going to go for this, but it's got to fit and it's got to be right and, and all of that, as opposed to just sort of, you know, being being a bit more relaxed about it. So, um, yeah. <laughs> I think, it, uh, do you know what? I think the more one final bit is, I think it's because because like 
no one in my family had ever been to Oxford. I didn't really have any. I, it kind of made me go and do a bit of research myself. Whereas I think if, if someone had gone, oh, you know, you should go to this college or you should do this. But because I didn't really know, I spent a bit of time, you know, looking at it, which is probably why, helpfully, I ended up in the right place. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Fantastic. And, um, you know, when you were actually in Costa, obviously that organisation went through a huge amount of change, didn't it, in terms of ownership structure. And I think Elliot got involved, didn't they, in terms of disbanding, you know, sort of, um, the, you, know, you know who I mean, don't you? They tried to force whip by hand, yeah, they did. That's it, that's it. Because yeah, actually when I was at Saga, I was the CEO of the travel division for Saga and Elliot also took a shareholding in Saga. Mm-hmm. So again, they sort of got a bit of a reputation, yeah. haven't they, of going into big corporates, taking a shareholding, disrupting yeah. things, looking yeah. about doing co- corporate carve-outs, which obviously you, you, you were sort of very much um, part of that. And uh, yeah, so it was interesting. What was it like politically-wise during that change at, at Costa? it must have been quite a tricky period I think for Whitbread and for for what you were trying to do as well with your role there yeah I think it's interesting so Costa had grown up obviously under the ownership of Whitbread and for a long time it was protected by that structure and Mm -hmm. so there was a very sort of really nice parent-child relationship really and then and then what happened was I think uh, Costa got more confident and started to stand more alone as a business. Um, so that process process had already started to happen. Whether where Costa was more confident, it was more challenging of the direction it wanted to go in. So that was definitely happening. Mm. Uh, but I think clearly, when a business is going to be demerged and then obviously pivoted, there is a, there's a mixture of apprehension excitement and it was both of those things if I'm honest you know it was apprehension around we know how Whitbread have operated we know what the shareholders want there we know you know versus the um apprehension of we we don't know Atlanta we don't know Coca-Cola we don't know this but equally they're the largest beverage company in the world what a wonderful opportunity you know so if I'm honest it was a real mix and I think we had a year where the 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 big learning was just constant communication to the teams about what was happening and and trying to balance off the apprehensive questions that were coming through and the excitement so I think it was both I think I think the other thing is um Alison Britton and Dominic my boss they'd obviously as part of the deal it was demerged in less than 15 months 12 months the deal was done which actually was a very rapid timeline and at the start I thought god we ever going to get this done because the systems that we had to sort of pull away from Whitbread were quite material but Mm. I think their timelines on reflection were spot on because had it gone on much longer I think that balance of the apprehension and the excitement becomes a bit, you know, can get out of kilter. So I think it was the right timeline, actually. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I mean, listen, I've been through lots of demergers and acquisitions and all sorts of different, you know, sort of restructures out through my career, mainly in the travel industry. And I think, you know, the more senior you get, the role you often play is almost this this kind of cushion between what's going on at, at the more corporate board level if you like and, and what's happening with the operation because you're still going to deliver your numbers you're still yeah. going to serve your customers and and protect your team as well so so how how did you navigate through that because that does require a certain approach doesn't it? a certain kind of a, you know emotional intelligence as well as commercially savviness as well and almost acting like that sandwich you know the, the meat in the sandwich between those two bars how, how, how did you you approach that Claire yeah and I think I think that there was a um, 
So I think my job as a MD of an operating division was to over-index a lot on the keeping the business going. So yeah. we had a tight group, you know, the CFO, um, CPO, and obviously our CEO, who were really homing in on the um, the actual execution of the pulling the business away. Yeah. But ultimately, our job was to keep the business really running well, to plan. So I think... Um, I think at the start, we agreed that as a board and, and, and in that sort of operational role, it was key. Um, mm. And I think the other thing, I almost felt an increased responsibility because at the time, I was looking after the Middle East and Asia, which was a predominantly franchise-run business. And therefore, again, the need to reassure partners and um, maintain communication and maintain day-to-day -day business. I think that's the other thing. So, for example, we still, during that time, continue to agree new franchise partnerships we still continued to signal to the partners there was no interruption in what we were doing with our underlying business plans so i think i think homing in on that was probably key and making sure we agreed um that despite the fact that this deal and transaction was going on we would continue to make the, the calls required to grow the business yeah, no, fantastic. Were you li were you actually living in the Middle East when you were covering that region, or were you back and forward? No, I did the back and forth, you know. So, um, yeah, so it's really interesting. So I took on the Middle East and Asia um, in the middle of 2016, and you'll probably think I'm bonkers when I say this, when I just had my second child. <laughs> so um, I came back to work, and Costa was restructuring. And it was just that classic moment of there was a position on the executive team. It was a it was the role I'd always I'd wanted, and I was like, oh, this is this has come along at this moment, and it probably says a lot about me you know, that I was kind of like, well, this is the job I've wanted, and why would I not put myself in the frame for this role just because I've had my second child and. I came and I was successful and I, I I got the role. So I came back when Robert was seven months old and I went into the role traveling based out of the UK. So probably the reason I did it out of the UK was because I actually had Robert at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and on reflection, you obviously, can, I remember having a conversation with my boss at the time, I was like, you definitely can do it from the UK, but it obviously, there'll be a timeline on that job, he said, Claire, because there comes a point where you will just be a bit worn out by travelling around, etc. So yeah. I did it for three years, and um, uh, yeah, I was able to do it effectively. I was from the UK, because obviously, particularly the Middle East, you could get in and out fine. Asia was a bit more challenging at times, and obviously, you know, um, but yes, I did it based out of the UK for my sins. <laughs> wow, honestly. Well, because it's another dimension, isn't it? That often, what you know, working mums have to, to kind of think, you know, you've got the perfect career, that you know, career opportunity that you've been working all these years towards. And then you you were, you know, you're you're a mum for the second time. And what was that was did you find tension, Claire? You know, because it's really it's really interesting, isn't it? You know, that, I don't know, you speak to a lot of working mums and you say, I just feel permanently guilty like I'm not I'm neither not giving my all at work or I'm not giving my yeah. all at, at home and and I think it this this sort of elusive balance that people talk about I'm not sure actually exists but how did it how did it kind of play out for you those two sides of the coin around being a mum and also being you know in that very senior exec role that you're in yeah and I think it's um something that I continually do juggle and balance and I think there are times where 
you you are you have it well balanced and then something will throw it out that's how i've always found it um so one of my old bosses said to me well you, you know there's three things there's your health there's your relationship and there's your family claire and you'll never have all three in balance he said to me and that was like what and through your work as well went, you'll never be able to balance all those three things you'll always have two that are perfect and then one yeah. will go out of sync and i remember thinking to him well and but i think that that has rung true with me that you, you know to get this balance you tend to go through periods where it's okay and then something skews it. Um, but I think actually doing the international job was interesting because it it taught me, I had to be very disciplined with my travel plans. And, and actually, when you're quite disciplined and organized, it can mean you actually get a better balance, actually, because you're far more overt around, I'm away now, I'm back now, therefore, nope, I'm switching everything off. I'm now with the kids for three days. So... I think oddly, I do look back and think that the international element of it actually meant I was more organised, more disciplined, and therefore I was I was far more ruthless with the trade offs. I think, particularly yeah. with different time zones as well, um, it just forces you to be that more disciplined. So I do think sometimes people and women in particular think there's this expectation, you know, that they have to work in a certain way and be available all the time. And I think my advice is. Imagine if you were traveling internationally and dealing with different time zones, you'd have, you would have clear times where you were, I'm doing calls at this point, I've got my thinking time here, I'm switched off here. So, um, so I think I actually learned quite a lot from being in that role then, but it is an ongoing challenge, you know? I mean, I smiled, I said to you before we came on this call this morning, it's half term, I was in Norfolk at the weekend with my husband and kids. This morning I got on the train to come into London to work. But I'm a bit, but that's, that's you know, that's those are the balances and, and the sort of the trade-offs you always kind of, I think, um, will have as a working Yeah, plan. Yeah, and I think you make a really, a really valid point, you know, it's around being whatever, wherever you're spending your time, it's trying to be fully present in that moment, isn't it? And giving 100% of that and then saying, right, okay, compartmentalise, now I'm 100% with the, with, with the family, with the kids or, and, and doing family stuff or, you know, personal stuff or whatever. And, and I think, yeah, sometimes we find, I find it myself, even now you, you get distracted and, oh, we'll have a sneaky look at my, you know, phone's the worst, right? I'll have a sneaky look at the phone when actually you shouldn't be doing that. You know, I actually should be with my partner, Chris, or whatever, you know, and it's trying to have that discipline, isn't it, around it and just being fully present in whatever you're doing at the time, you know? I think, you, I think you're spot on. I, I did read something, someone in some parenting thing said, look, the first five or 10 minutes when you walk through the door, you need to, that is the most important time to be present in your children's, you know, in their day and what's happened. You've got to just clear it out and be there for them. And I think, I do think that's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's brilliant advice. And um, let's let's talk, let's sort of fast forward. So you, you did an amazing job at, at, at Costa um, and obviously at Boots as well. That was sort of where I suppose you were in your stripes, wasn't it? You got yeah. your, you know, your kind of, foundational stuff in in place um, I did the same on a graduate scheme at Thompson Holidays back in the day you know so yeah as I say you go through your story and I'm thinking oh that, that means well that means well apart from I haven't had the kids so I haven't got that but <laughs> apart from that bit um, but when you were, when you moved into the pub game obviously tell us a little bit about Green King because obviously a lot of people will know the brand and that they'll know that you know you've got different aspects of the business but just give us a little bit of an overview of that and then I just want to really sort of dig in a little bit in terms of the industry and kind of some of the challenges and, and opportunities as well that you know that kind of you're focusing on so yeah green king tell us yeah. about green king so green king uh has been around for over 200 years it's a 
big business of over two and a half thousand pubs. A big chunk of that business is tenanted. A big chunk of it is managed. We have a big brewing and brands business. Um, so you'd also and you'd also see our products in the supermarket. You know, so it's a multi-channel business, um, and we are um, one of the largest. You know, in the in the UK, um, Green King was taken private in 2019 so it was sold towards the end of 2019 um so we are now a private business um which actually um has been i think really advantageous for us because we're not uh in the plc world we're not yeah. we're not we're not we're not in the glare of our share price being analyzed all, all the time and that's mm-hmm. important because green king um nick mckenzie came into green king in 2019 as ceo very much once the business was taken private with a remit to transform the culture of the business um, and um, to, I think, really transform the way that pubs are perceived and used by by um, customers. So Nick had, has, has and, and has worked yeah. with us to create a big transformation agenda. Um, I think that that obviously massively appealed to me when I was looking for a role, which is why I think um, I came to Green King. Um, and I think that we are a couple of years into that transformation program with many years to go. Um, and so as, as, and so we're starting to, you know, make some steps forward now with some of the things um, that our customers might see or that our teams might see. So, you know, we're on a journey with what I'd say, Jeanette, um, with a long way to go. Because when you, when you look at our business, historically, it was a business that was definitely skewed towards white, older men, as customers coming and, and, and visiting our pubs. And it historically, um, I would say, when you looked at some of the um, the data also, we, we have been a predominantly white, uh, uh, we've had predominantly white male individual also working for us. And that yeah. has changed a lot, but we've got a lot of work still to do to continue with the great work we've done. So I think, um, yeah, I came along because I'm, I'm, I'm a great believer in change. I'm a great believer in transformation information programs but I'm also um, very passionate about making hospitality spaces really accessible places for customers and, and teams yeah no and, and I think it's I think you, I, I agree with you I think it's a fascinating space because you know consumers are changing we're coming off the back of a pandemic which has had a massive massive impact on on leisure hospitality travel businesses you know across the piece and like you say you've got a legacy culture which you want to retain the best of those bits, but it's how do you then have the, you know, a new combination going forward that doesn't lose all the historic stuff of 200 plus years, um, but you also want to make sure you're relevant for today's world, don't you? And, and whatever Yeah, and, and young people, Jeanette, it's really interesting. I think the pub sector as a whole has also got a real challenge with appealing to younger customers. So 18 mm. to 24 year olds do not use the pubs in the same volume or the same way as perhaps I would have done when I was young. So working out the relevance for our younger customers is also key, I think, for the whole sector. Um, you know, so that that's a real challenge that we're all uh, working through as well. 
Yeah, and and there was some. I mean, there is some things. I I, um, I heard Nick speak at the. We were talking earlier, weren't we? At, that Nick was on um, was was being interviewed at a Plan B conference, which is now called Balance the Board, that I was speaking at, and that's where I first sort of heard Nick speaking. Um, but he was talking about even things like changing the names of some of the pubs, you know, because maybe historically they had certain names, which in today's everyday world is, is just not seen as acceptable anymore but that brings with it you think or oh, just change the name of a pub well it's not as simple as that because these may be names of pubs that have been in villages in communities for such a long time and even something as simple as that isn't straightforward is it actually so you know that, that must be challenging as well things like that definitely not and I think that it's interesting you've hit on something there which I've learned about pubs in the last two and a half years which is there is this sense because pubs such uh a, some pubs can be very historic, but B, because pubs play such an important part in the communities within which they operate, there is this sense of ownership from customers. There is a sense that the pub is their pub. And on the one hand, that's a wonderful thing. You've, but the challenge is, of course, is you want to evolve that pub and, you you know, it does bring its challenges. Um, so it's, it's how we can do that in a constructive way. I think we're trying to do it in the right way. We're trying to have open dialogue where we have these issues, you know, with communities. But, yeah, it's, it's definitely, um, yeah, definitely an interesting path. Yeah, fantastic. So how do you keep yourself close to customers then, Claire? Because again, you know, you've got a huge responsibility, you've got a massive portfolio, you've got big teams, you know, commercial numbers to hit all the rest of it. And I think it, it can become a little bit harder sometimes, the more senior you get in, in your career to, to still yeah. keep that grassroots contact with the customer. So just interested to hear how you, how you do that, because anyone listening that's also, you know, in, in a in a, a brand-led, service-led business like like you are and that I, that I have been, and, and I'm still um, keeping in touch with your customers actually is, is probably the most important thing you can do as well as of course keeping in touch with your teams but we'll talk about that separately so yeah customers how do, how do you how do you keep self in touch yeah so uh, I think you're spot on there Jeanette right so um, one of our values is customer first we have a, we've invested heavily in our insight team in the last couple of years so we have a regular flow of insight so we would have uh, we do have weekly insight, but typically we'd have a monthly quite deep dive on what's going on, who's using our pubs, uh, where's market share going. We obviously monitor, you know, competitor movements on price, on offers, on promotions. So there is a constant flow of what is going on within um, our direct competitive sphere. So I think I think that's really important. Um, but I don't think you can also have that on, on its own. So you've got to be out on your businesses. You have to, and you also need to talk to your teams because they're closest to your customers. And I think obviously seeing customers whilst you're in pubs or your coffee shops or wherever you are is essential. Um, so I think the combination of those things would be how I would say you stay close to customers, relevant insights frequently, and you then supplement that and you build, put that together with talking to your teams regularly and seeing the customers when you're there. I mean, we also do do some, um, I was on a consumer focus group um, behind the scenes a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about researching some new concepts and menus. So I was listening into what customers were saying. So again, I think there's nothing, hearing something firsthand yourself is important as well. So um, I think it's probably a combination of all those things. But my advice is, if you have it top of mind, as for us at Green King, customer first is one of our most important you know, things we're working on. You can't really not then follow some of those processes. 
Yeah, no, I mean, listen, I'm a big believer. You keep it simple, but what gets measured gets done, <laughs> to be yeah. honest. And, and you're right, if you've got the right metrics to be able to have that regular, you know, check-in and it's high on your strategic agenda, it's going to be discussed and debated. So can you pull a wicked pint then, Claire? Oh, um, I can pull a pint. Uh, I probably can't pull one uh, as quick as some of our wonderful teams, Jeanette. I'll say it that way. Um, yeah, I can, but not probably at the speed and the volumes that they do. Emma with a big frothy head on. <laughs> <laughs> no, listen, it's great. And you know what? I think with your style as well and, you know, kind of your personality coming through, I'm sure that really helps you navigate some of those more difficult conversations. Because I think, you know, when you're dealing with change, you know, people will very often be resistant to change. And, you know, there's almost the emotional side of change that often isn't really discussed and explored as, as much as as much as it can do. So so when you're when you're facing some um some roadblocks, Claire, in terms of maybe trying to get a change through um or trying to get people on board, etc. What are some of the more challenging aspects that you've had to deal with and, and any tips for anyone else in other businesses that's trying to drive a sort of a big strategic change agenda like you are? I think the most important bit when you're trying to drive change is to be to be very clear on the rationale to make sure the change is worthwhile. So that's the first thing. And to make sure everybody in the business is aligned as to the rationale and why we're doing something. So I think coming back to the why and making sure that it's been clearly agreed across a business that something has to be changed because it's a key priority whether that's to drive future growth or whatever the reason is i think most reasons why change goes wrong is because those two things don't tend to be aligned and then i think the other thing is thinking about not just the why but thinking about how you need to land the change that requires definitely getting very close to the teams in our outlets who are going to be delivering the change potentially so i think that is key getting close to the operation and understanding what has to change to make something land and it usually involves clearing space out so there's only one or two things for that team to focus on making it really simple um and uh, and then and then focusing everybody together on landing it at the same time so i think often when i've when things have gone wrong it's because we've tried to either overcomplicate things we try to do too much or we've not diagnosed the problem right and the why is not not right and therefore people then resist the change because they're going i don't what well, i don't what well, what why would i want to do that so i think it is a combination of diagnosing the why properly thinking about then clearing space so the change can be delivered and then i think the final bit is you'll always get some people who will resist change so it's it's anticipating that that's going to happen and it's being ready then with the skills to then cycle that change back which is either giving people feedback it's either going right back and retraining or going back again you know so you've got to anticipate there's going to be some rejectors you've got to think about how you can handle people who are rejecting and then that would be that, that think those would be my my top tips you know, on how i would you know land change yeah, no, that's great. And, and you're absolutely right. And I'm really pleased that you talked about the why. Um, there's a brilliant book, actually. It's, it's, it's a classic book. And you've probably heard, probably read it, actually, by Simon Sinek. 
One of my favourites. <laughs> yeah, start with why, but it's true, isn't it? You know, for anyone to feel an emotional connection to what you're doing and to really understand the purpose behind it, once you've got that buy-in, it's much easier then to move forward. It doesn't mean to say you'll agree on everything, of course, but at least then you've got more of an openness as opposed to sort of having, you know, tension right from the beginning. And businesses so often focus on the how and the what, don't they, too much. They, they miss the why. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, it was interesting actually because in that book, I'm just rereading it at the moment because I'm, um, I'm I'm just actually running a program for a big organisation at the moment, so we're focusing it a lot around why. Um, and it was talking about Starbucks in there and how Schultz and how Starbucks. I was thinking about your Costa kind of background, how they lost sight of their why. And their real their why was to be this third space, wasn't it, between yeah. the, the work, work and home? And then they started, you know, kind of moving away from that and having paper cups and this that, and the other that no longer became a welcoming space. They lost their purpose and why. Um, so it's it's I think it's brilliant that you've actually um, mem- mentioned that because it's so easy to rush in, isn't it, and focus on what you need to do, how you're going to do it, without actually covering that really important piece off first. Um, so, yeah, fantastic. And, and Claire, you know, you talked about the, the sort of the, I suppose, the dynamics around the pub sector, but also Green King historically being quite white male dominated and that sort of changing over time. So let's just touch on a little bit around diversity and inclusion um, and, and you being a woman in business in probably still a fairly more biased towards a male centric kind of world. Still, I would imagine there's still work to do. So, you know, how, how's that played out for you in your career? Have you have you come across sort of, you know, blockers because you're a woman in business or have you generally just got on and, and not come across problems? Or, you know, how, how do you navigate that whole DNI piece for yourself personally, but also then for what you're trying to do at Green King? I, I, I genuinely don't believe that I have directly hit blockers. But what I know through my career has been the case is that I've found myself in certain environments where I've been the only woman sat around a table of 20. In the Middle East, you know, I I, I sat, you know, um, actually interviewing and signing off a business plan for some new markets. And there was an entire male, there, was, there wasn't a woman in the entire building that I was in. So I, whilst I, I haven't had any direct blockers, what I would say is that there have been environments that I've had to navigate, which have required either some quite high internal resilience you know to the point where I was even taken to a ladies toilet that wasn't in the main set of a building in the Middle East because they didn't have women in there normally so I've had those things happen and you just I've just taken them in my stride because I've kind of gone I'm here and I'm in a role and just by being here I am being changed and I am you know so I think I've kind of been I've been aware of that um so yeah I wouldn't say direct but I've had those environments I've had to navigate would be how I would answer that you know and I think it just means that I am more mindful of those environments and it means that I'm more determined to make sure that people understand uh if they perhaps have got that environment themselves for example if they if there is an all-male team that someone's sitting on then I kind of bring that into the conversation to sort of go can you think about how that might feel can you think about that you know so try and take my personal experiences of those things and bring them now into more broader conversations around that if that makes sense 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I mean, again, similarly, I've been in situations where I've been the only woman in the boardroom, in particular with the PL. Um, in particular, I've found that. Um, <laughs> you know, and it's funny, isn't it? Because I've had some amazing male bosses, I've had some great female bosses, you know. And I think I've whilst you you can feel that sort of environment sometimes, that pressure, you know, I always sort of think, well, if you walk into a room thinking there's going to be a problem, there probably will be. Uh, whereas if you just kind of try and do the best you can, be you yeah. and lead with value, then hopefully you'll get through all of that and you know be the change you want to see I suppose isn't it really that that's how I've always tried to navigate and things are changing there's still more to be done but I mean it has changed remarkably from when we were starting our careers I think which is a good thing of course so um I can't wait to see how how Green King kind of evolves out the other end to be honest you'll probably never you're like it's a, you're always a constant thing though isn't it? you never <laughs> arrive at this you always it's, it's what's next you know I know I know you know you're right you are right there is this constant constant focus on it a constant yeah. need to continue but yeah fantastic listen Claire I could talk to you all day we might have to do a follow-up interview actually once you've um, you know driven some of this amazing change through the business we'll do it after do a follow-up but um before we finish Claire can you can you well, I'm going to ask you the last questions but before I do very briefly can you think of what you're most proud of in your career and in your life um I'm most proud of being a working parent yeah that's what I'd say yeah, brilliant. Okay. And as you should as well, because you've achieved amazing <laughs> things both personally and professionally. So when you look back through your career and this, you know, this amazing career and you've still got the best is yet to come for Claire Preston Beer, I feel. Um, but can you think of any of uh, the best piece of advice you may have been given or a really good piece that sort of stayed with you for many years? Do you know, there's probably two. So my dad always, from when I was little, was just like, you need to be the best version of you that you can be and just said you just need to do your best as long as you've done your best you know that that was you know all you could really ask so I've always had that in me from when I was about two um and I think now whenever I talk to anybody I just say you need to be yourself and you need to be the best version of yourself you can be um, and I genuinely believe that's great advice for anybody fantastic what's the second one then you said there were two uh well, I was kind of be, be be yourself, do the best you can. Those oh, are okay. kind of dad <laughs> slash like <laughs> slash other advice. One. Yeah, I think those would be the. I, I think my other one is my one is actually you only have one life, and therefore it goes quick. And my advice to anybody is you need to get as much as many experiences as you can into your life and your professional life will go really fast. So take as many opportunities as you can to sort of gather these experiences so that when you come to the end of your career and you look back, you've just got such a wonderful set of experiences to look back on. That's definitely what I would say. Oh, that's amazing. That's fantastic. Yeah, very good advice. And any bad advice you've ever had, Claire, that you regretted or you ignored? Um, somebody once said to me, don't go into retail and hospitality because you won't you won't you won't earn very much money someone said that to me and i've ignored that advice exactly that's just someone who's quite a snob about a sector and i think ignore people who've got preconceived views i guess is the bigger point there take your own path and ignore people who've got preconceived views yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, find something that you're going to love, an industry you're going to love, because if you love what you do, then you're going to give your all on you. you're going to be, you know, you're going to excel at whatever it is. So, yeah, that's really good advice. And the podcast is called Brave, Bold, Brilliant Claire, which clearly you are because you're here and we're chatting. <laughs> <laughs> when you think about that, either at separate words or as a collective kind of phrase, what does it mean to you? It means take chances, 
it, I will start off with why not? Why not? Why not go and do something, try something? Um, so for me, it means take chances, be brave, start with the why not. And uh, again, life goes quick. So you just fit it as much in as you can. Oh, fantastic. I love that. What a way to end. That's amazing. Oh, Claire, honestly, I have really loved chatting with you. We'll have to definitely do a follow-up, but thank you so much. No problem. Jeanette, great to meet you. And you, and you. I really hope you've enjoyed Brave, Bold, Brilliant. Don't forget to subscribe and share with all your friends. And if you've enjoyed listening, I'd love it if you'd leave me a five-star review.